Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Our sermon title this morning is Seen is Believing. Now, there's a contemporary understanding of that phrase. Uh, what's the contemporary understanding of seeing is believing? What does that mean? Okay, yeah. So typically, our, our culture is seen. In other words, before I'll believe something, I have to see it. So one way of taking this, really, most of the time people mean it, certainly in our culture, is that seeing will result in believing. In other words, even more than that, seeing is necessary for believing. Unless I can see it, I'm not going to believe it. Um, I had a, a football, my head football coach in college was like this. Um, his name is Joe Morrison. He, he played for the New York Giants uh, with White, Tittle, and man, that, that old school group. And if, if you couldn't see my, if your injury couldn't be seen on an x-ray, you weren't hurt. And he expects you to be playing. So we, we use, one way our culture uses seeing as believing is, 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 I need proof first. I need to see evidence. In other words, I need to be able to see it before I'll believe it. This is what we call empiricism. And empiricism is where all knowledge is based on sense experience. If I can't, if I can't see, feel, hear, touch, I'm not, I'm not going to believe it. Which is self-contradictory because is empiricism true? <laughs> they believe it's true, but can you touch, can you see, feel, hear, and touch empiricism? No. So it, ha- it has some logical inconsistencies, but we, we, we have this a lot in our culture. Uh, seeing is believing. I have to be, be able to see it before I believe it. That's not the sense in which I'm using it this morning, nor the sense in which Mark and Jesus uses it in Mark chapter 8. You see, another way of, 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 of taking this is that seeing is believing. In other words, seeing equals believing. When you see, you believe. Does that, does that make sense? In other words, seeing equals believing. Seeing is believing. You math teachers, you understand. Okay. Um, believing is seeing. Well, you know, it, it, does a if a equals b, does b always equal a? Okay. <laughs> All right. I won't dispute the math guys. That a equals b, b equals a. No. Okay, but we're taking. No, you're right. Um, now, when we say seeing is believing, the word see has a lot of different. It has what we call a semantic range. Uh, there, there's different ways that see, the, the word see, can be interpreted. What's one way when we say to see, do we mean? What does that mean, to see? Understand. Yeah, it means to, what's that? Well, yeah, okay, so yeah, one is, it's metaphorical for, for perceiving, for understanding. If someone explains something to you, you say, oh, I see. You're not saying, I'm perceiving with my eyes. You're saying what? I'm perceiving. I, yeah, oh, I see what he's trying to say. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's an understand. It, it's, 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 it's grasping the meaning or the understanding. So seeing can be physical, a, a function of your eyes. I, I see you, you see me. But oftentimes we use the word see. As, and in fact, uh, 
pay attention this week and see how many times, you're not going to physically see, how often we use the word see to mean recognize, perceive, understand. That's almost it's predominant how, how often we use it. So, so that's how we're going to, I think that's really what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 8. Not physical sight. Now he's going to use physical sight to represent understanding and grasping and perception. Um, but really, in, in this chapter, seeing is believing. Seeing equals believing. Now, chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Now, what does he mean, another large crowd gathered? In addition to what? The last one, which was in chapter what six, right? Chapter six, verse thirty, and there it was a feeding of five thousand. Five thousand. It could have been anywhere. It could be ten thousand. So this is another. Even Mark says this is another large crowd, four thousand. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, "I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days, and have nothing to eat." If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And good old disciples. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, we don't know how much time has elapsed between the 5,000 and now. But I want to say, McFly. Really? When you read this, you go, really? You guys really? Are asking that question? No, where, where, where in this, can we get enough bread to feed all these people? Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground, and when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well, and he gave thanks for them. Uh, and also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after he had sent them away, he got into a boat with the disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, when I was studying this, I was thinking, why in the world would Mark record two almost identical uh, accounts? You know, it wasn't, in, in terms of our, our literal chronological, it, it, how, how he wrote his gospel, it's only one page. There's not even two pages between the 5,000 and the 4,000. So here's what I did. I thought, why in the world did this? So I went back and I traced chapter 6. I started with the feeding of the 5,000 and I started with the feeding of the 4,000. Corey, could you put that slide up? Here, here's what's fascinating to me. Okay, here's, so here's what I did. So, verse 8 through 9 is the 4,000. So we, I see a, there, was a, there was a repeated progression of six things. Um, we had the feeding of the great crowd, 630 to 44 is the 5,000, 8, 1 through 9 is the 4,000. Then we have a boat ride. They get on a boat. We just read that verse 10. Remember back in 645 through 56, remember they encountered the storm or they, they were struggling at the oars. Then they had a confrontation with the Pharisees. 8, 11 through 13. We're going to look at those. 7, 1 through 23. Then there was a lesson regarding the bread. Then there was a miraculous healing. And it ends with a significant confession. And I think that what Mark is doing is 
he, he has two parallel progressions, two identical progressions. And, and I put it in red because I think the focus of both of these parallel, mm, what did I say, repeated progression was the ultimate confession that was made at the end. If you remember the end of chapter 7, what was, the ultimate con- what was their ultimate confession? He has done all things well. And we're going to see in chapter in verses 27 through 30 uh, an even greater and more a, a, a clearer confession even than that one. So I think this was an intentional thing on Mark's part to, to, to repeat this progression to emphasize um, the culmination uh, of, the, of the confessions that were made as a result of the, the, the progression of events that occurred. So this really was the object, if you will, of, of seeing. Another miraculous feeding is the object of what they were to see. And both led to a significant confession. So there were three groups, and there, there, you're going to see three groups as a result of seeing in chapter 8. The first group is those who clearly can't see. Those who clearly can't see. Look with me at verse 11. Then the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. And to test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back in the boat and crossed to the other side. Those who clearly can't see the Pharisees. What did the Pharisees do? They came to him and they did what? They demanded a sign and a testing miracle. What in essence were they saying? Prove it. Prove that you're the Messiah. Now, how would you have answered if you were sitting there uh, and heard them say that to Jesus? Thank you. What already, just in the Gospel of Mark, not counting, uh, he he doesn't record everything Matthew and Luke records, all that Jesus has done up to this point, but what have they actually physically seen Jesus do up until this point? Do you remember? Just some things. The feeding of the by the thousands, casting out of demons, multiple healings, the paralytic heal, raising of the dead, his baptism. But and what? But what did they say? Give me some evidence. They want proof. In fact, verse 11 said they were, they were disputing with him. My, my translation says they, they, were, they, they began to question him. But this, is, this was from a standpoint of disputing or arguing with him. They're saying, prove it. Give us some kind of proof that you are who you say you are. Keep your marker here and, and turn to Luke 16. Those who clearly can't see. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, but if if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. How do we explain this? They saw, in fact, another Lazarus. The Pharisees saw him raise Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, saw him raise him to life. And what what was their response? We're going to kill him. We're going to talk at the end of end of our time together. We're going to talk a little more, a little bit more about the role uh, role of evidence. Um, but Jesus, in Mark chapter eight, he 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 sighed. He he sighed deeply, and they said, "Prove it. Give us evidence. We we want to see some evidence." And he sighed, probably from exasperation. And and I say exasperation because here's the. Here's how the Bible uh, treats unbelief. On the one hand, the Bible says that people are spiritually dead. They have no capacity to believe. Just as a dead person has no capacity to to do anything. So, So the Bible says they are spiritually dead. And they are totally, in and of themselves, totally incapable of believing. And so, if that, if that was only the case, then Jesus, why would Jesus be, why would he sigh deeply? Why would he be exasperating? They, he would just say, well, that, that's just what the spiritually dead do. Spiritually dead can't see. Because on the other hand, I think the reason why he sighs with exasperation is, on the other hand, the Bible never treats being spiritually dead as not being personally responsible for spiritual death. He sighs because they should have seen. But then you say, well, they can't see. Yeah, the Bible does teach that. But the Bible also says he holds them responsible for not seeing. They were willfully not seen. So, we're going to be studying this in Ephesians. The, the, the Ephesian says we were spiritually dead. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses. 
But no one will stand before God and say, you know what, God, I, I just didn't have the ability to believe. They didn't have the ability to believe, but God holds them personally responsible. You'll blow a cerebral cortex trying to, try to figure that one out. The spiritually blind are also personally responsible for their blindness. Here's the thing. Skeptics always demand evidence. And yet, when they receive it, they reject it. A great question to ask someone who says, well, prove that Jesus is God. Well, what kind of proof would convince you that he's God? We're going to talk a little bit more of this in the end, about, about the role of evidence. And I, and I know that maybe some would disagree with me on this. I'm not saying that no one has come to know the Lord through observing the evidence. Some people have done that. And God can take a, a crooked bat and hit a baseball. But it, he, I don't think He wants us to command broken bat, broke, you know, crooked bats. Evidence is to bolster the faith of believers. When we try to use evidence to convince skeptics that Jesus is God, there's, there's going to be two fundamental flaws in that. Number one is you can never provide enough evidence for them. When was the last time that, that you used any kind of evidence and they went, oh, how could I have been so stupid? Of course Jesus is God. It's to bolster, primarily it's to bolster the faith of believers not to produce faith in skeptics because these guys, they'd had all the proof anyone could possibly imagine. We just named all the proof that they had. And yet, what, did they, what were they still saying? Show us a sign. That's a, there's never enough evidence to convince a skeptic. Who? Here's a, here's a question. Of all the people in the Bible, let's talk about the resurrection. Of all the people in the Bible, who had the most evidence that, that Jesus was raised from the dead? Mary. Who? Mary. Mary was one. Thank you, Michael. You get an A for the day. Who else? The guards at the tomb. The guards that carried his dead, lifeless body into the tomb and then placed the stone over it and then guarded it, the Roman cohort. And what did they do? Did they believe? They, of all people, knew he was raised from the dead because they put his body in there and the, the Gospels tell us that when they went, they, they went and told the, 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 the Pharisees that they, his body's gone. And what did they say? They cooked up this conspiracy. We'll say, we're going we're gonna to say that, uh, that the disciples stole the body. And the guards went, good enough for us. Did they believe? No. Listen, if evidence was enough, there'd be no skeptics. Those who clearly can't see. How much evidence do you need? Group number two is those... Not those who clearly can't see, but those who can't see clearly. Those who can't see clearly. Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 14. <clears throat> the disciples. There you go. Thank you, Jasmine. You picked up on it. I think that was intentional. Now, the disciples 
had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned. Uh, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Okay, now stop there for just a minute. I want you to picture this scene. They're on a boat and Jesus says, guys, I want you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And what did they start doing? Okay. Oh, we forgot to bring enough. He's, he's, he's telling us we didn't bring enough bread. Okay, who is responsible? Who is responsible to bring? Andrew, I think you were willing. Wait, didn't I tell you to bring more bread? They, they were discussing. They completely didn't see what Jesus was talking about. What he just did. What he just. Why would you ever buy more than one loaf? <laughs> I would have been like, guys, stop buying more bread. Thank you. Now, before we before we point our fingers and collect our tongues, how many times do we not get it? How many times did Jesus have to do things for us, and and we still go, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to? We don't have enough bread. Uh, okay, I, I, I want you to get the humor in this. And I hope you see us in the disciples. These who, they can't see clearly. Clearly, they can't see clearly. Aware of their discussion, so they're in the back of the boat. Uh, who's, who, who's supposed to bring the bread? You know, we forgot. Oh, we have, what were we thinking? We had all those loaves and all we brought was one. Jesus asked him, why are you talking about having no bread? Here it is. Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? He's not talking about physical sight here. And ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? He replied, twelve. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000 just minutes ago, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Do you still not see clearly? In fact, he now explains to them what he meant. He said, watch out for the yeast. What's yeast? Hmm? What is, is it? It's, it's not a vegetable. It's what? What? Is, it's a weed. What is it? They're animals. Yeah. A yeast is an animal. It's a bacteria. It's a living microbe. Okay. It's a creature. Okay. Yeast is a small creature. And what does yeast do? It burps. Okay. Okay. What are the effects of yeast? <laughs> yeah, no one's ever going to eat at Susie's house again. <laughs> what does yeast do? It it makes it lets out air. It 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 makes stuff grow and rise. It it has a it has a permeating influence. A little bit of yeast. The the effects of a little bit of yeast does what? It's out of proportion to what they are itself. They're small little creatures that burp and the, the, their influence is, is permeating. 
It doesn't take much to, to affect a whole loaf of bread. And, and, and it's ironic that he's talking about bread here. So what does he mean when he's saying, guys, I want you to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. The permeating influence. We could say he could probably refer to the doctrine of the Pharisees. Well, just a little bit of their doctrine will have a permeating influence on you. A little bit of their perspective, a little bit of their worldview. And so what I did was I, I went back and I, I just, and I'm, I'm sure I missed some things, just some characteristics of the yeast of the Pharisees. Number one, obviously they rejected Jesus. They rejected the word of God for man-made traditions. They were hypocrites. Remember we talked about the moral component to hypocrisy. They did their works to be seen of men. They loved the attention and special treatment of men. They demanded religious titles. They exploited people. Religiously, spiritually, they exploited people to make money. These were the Pharisees. This was the yeast of the Pharisees. But make no mistake about it, the, the Pharisees were considered the religious conservatives. And yet, Jesus says that they had a yeast that would influence them for the worse. They were Christian in name only, if you will. They were probably what Paul later described as, they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. But he said, also beware of the yeast of Herod. Now, why would he say Herod? It's interesting that the parallel passage in Matthew 16, 6, Matthew records Jesus as saying, beware of the, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So I take that to believe that, that the yeast of Herod and the yeast of Sadducees were synonymous. These were the, the, who were the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the religious liberals of their day. They were the United Methodists. Uh, they denied the deity of Christ. Um, they, 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 they supported Rome. They were pro-Rome. They were what we call statists. They, 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 their allegiance was to the state, not to Christ. They were pro-Roman because they, had a, they, they were the wealthy. They, were, they had a lot to gain from being pro-Roman. They supported Herod. Maybe that's why Jesus, Mark recorded in his saying, that of Herod. But they, they held to human reason over divine revelation. And, and, and as a result, they, they denied the bodily res- They denied resurrection. They, they denied anything supernatural. Because that, that violated human reason. Any denial, they denied anything that was miraculous. I guess you could say these were the religious liberals or the secular liberals. He's saying you need to be careful that you don't allow the least, the yeast of a secular culture to influence you. And to permeate your group. Nor the, the yeast of, of those who claim to be Christians, but who reject the word of God, who are hypocritical, who do their works to be seen of men, who love attention, special treatment. He's saying, on the other hand, don't let their yeast affect you either. In fact, the key verses here in Mark chapter 8, verse 17 again, he says, do you still not understand 
Verse 18. Do you still not see? Verse 21. Do you still not understand? See, see, they had a they had a, a, a kind of understanding. They had an initial eyesight, but they still couldn't yet clearly see, which I think leads Mark to include now the healing of this blind man of Bethesda. And, and let me suggest to us that this is, this is in fact an, an object lesson of the disciples themselves. That Jesus wanted the disciples to see themselves as this blind man at Bethesda, or Bethsaida. Verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So what did he just say to Jesus? I can see, but I can't see clearly. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened wide. The, the, the Greek is, his eyes were wide open. His sight was restored, and he saw everything, what? Clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Why this? Why this? This strange healing, spitting and eyes, and now suddenly, it, it, if this is just about physical healing, then are we to suggest that sometimes Jesus couldn't heal completely if the first time? Doesn't it seem odd to you that, that of all of his healings, this is the only one that he didn't get it right the first time. We, we, see, we, we saw him heal a... The, 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 the woman's daughter, he just said, go home, she's healed. Didn't he have to be there? Didn't touch her, didn't see her, just healed from a distance. Why this? Why this? Well, I, I kind of see, but I can't see real clearly. I just see, they look like trees walking around. And then he said, okay, well, okay, now i got to really, you know, Mr. Miyagi, you know, i got to... Um, I think it's clear, it's clear that, that this is to be a spiritual... Now, this truly happened physically, but it was, I think it's a spiritual picture of the disciples. That they, could, that they could, there was a level of sight. This is spiritually symbolic. That, that they had a level, they had a degree of understanding. But it, they had not yet come to full understanding. And I think what, it, what, what Jesus is, is telling us through Mark, through the blind man of Bethsaida, is that the blind will see, but... But many times it may come gradually. Understanding oftentimes is an unfolding process. And it's an unfolding process when it comes to salvation. Not everyone has a Damascus Road testimony. Not everyone got knocked off their horse by seeing a glorious image of Jesus and hearing Jesus' voice and they came to know the Lord. Many of our testimonies, in fact, I think we went through and shared your testimonies, and many of them, if not most of them, would be, it would be gradual. I, I, I actually I was talking to Amy this morning about her testimony. It was a gradual process. Now, let me make it clear. You don't gradually become a Christian. At some point, you cross over from death to life. At some point, when you believe, all of the... All of the um, 
all the redemption and reconciliation, all of those things are applied to you at the moment of belief. Not before, but at the moment of belief, the application is, is applied to us and we are saved. We, are, we have received forgiveness of sin. But up until that point, it's a process. My wife, Vicky. I say my wife like you guys, none of you know her. Vicky's was like that. It was, she, she, she went to church and she was, under, you know, she was kind of growing in her understanding. And she can't really remember the exact moment that, that, that she had this, you know, hallelujah, conversion experience. But oftentimes, understanding of who Jesus is and understanding the gospel is, 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 is a process. And there's an initial understanding, but, but then there comes a point in time when, okay, now I really see and believe. Seeing is believing. It's also, it's really true for sanctification. And that's why I say, you know, it's easy for us. I look at these disciples and go, these guys were not the, not the brightest bulbs in the path. And yet our sanctification is gradual in process. It's a, it, it's, we, we can see to a certain extent, but we, but we still can't clearly see. And, and that seeing, that understanding, that grasping, that perception is a, it's progressive. And ultimately, when we're in glory, we're going to what? Whew, we're going to really see. We're going to see completely. Which leads us to number three. Those who can clearly see. So we saw those who clearly can't see. Those who can't see clearly. And the third is those who clearly see. As represented by Peter. Verse 27. Jesus and disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But he asked, What about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, Man, the brevity and the conciseness of this confession. You are the Messiah. No hesitation. No equivocation. In fact, um, Matthew includes, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In fact, turn to Matthew chapter 16. We need to see this. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 15, Matthew records the same question. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Listen to what Jesus Jesus replied. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter's confession. See, see the first question is really an historical question. Who, who, do, who do people say that Jesus is? Look, if you were to, if, if, let me ask you, if you were to ask people that live around you, or if we did a, a, a took a, a poll out on the street, what do you think most people say? Who is Jesus? Good teacher? A good guy? A, a lot may say son of God, because they sing, we still sing somewhat some Christmas hymns, that, Christmas songs that talk about 
the Son of God, although they, they have no clue what that phrase means. A, a good philosopher, a good moral teacher. Uh, Peter's confession was specific. It was exclusive. It was supernaturally revealed to him. And that's because we are, again, we are spiritually deaf and blind. But he made a clear confession about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ, which means Jesus is God. Those who can clearly see. Ligonier Ministries just uh, posted, a, I think it was a study by Lifeway, which is I so ironic. Uh, Lifeway just recently posted... Uh, they took a poll of confessing evangelicals. One of the statements, they were, to, they were to agree or disagree. One of the statements was, Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. You know what percentage of confessing evangelicals disagreed with that? Agreed that he was a good teacher, but not God? Close, 30%. Now you might say, "Wow, that you know at least seventy percent." Imagine that: thirty percent of confessing evangelicals said that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Listen, anything short of hundred percent. Now we all know the local church. The Bible tells us the local church is comprised of both believers and unbelievers. So I understand that, and that's why I phrased it by saying confessing evangelicals. Um, but that's scary. That in our churches, 30% of people say that Jesus was just a good teacher, but he certainly wasn't God. Those who clearly can't see, those who can't see clearly, and those who can clearly see. What do we take away from this? I think the first thing is we cannot allow skeptics to be judge and jury of God. Where, where in our world do, is evidence presented? Where is evidence presented? In a court. In a, in a court of law. And who is evidence presented to? A judge and a jury. How dare we allow skeptics to be judge and juries over God? God's the judge. They are on trial. Not the opposite. You see, when we try to give them evidence, we try to give them proof, what we are in essence is saying is they get to sit in the jury box and judge and decide whether God is really God, whether Jesus is really God. Now, the Bible says it's the other way around. He's the judge. The other thing, turn to, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And again, this gets back to the role of evidence. Number one, we never put, put God on trial. We never allow a sinful, wicked, evil person to judge who God is. Because first of all, the Bible says what? Are we going to believe our Bibles? What does the Bible say about that person? The Bible says they do believe in God. But they are doing what? They're suppressing it. So when we give them evidence, what would you say if someone came up to you and said, I, I, I don't believe... Um, I don't believe in the definition of words. I don't believe words have a definition. Would you, would you break out a dictionary and say, Oh, no, I've got a dictionary. Let me show you. Let me prove to you that... No, what would you call them? 
You call him a fool. And that's what the Bible calls. They already believe that God exists, but they suppress it. Are we going to believe our Bibles or not? But but look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. Jews demand signs. They're, Jews were saying, prove it. <clears throat> Greeks were doing what? Does this message fit within our philosophical framework? They look for wisdom. Is this... Can I... Does this fit within my, all these philosophical speculations? And so, what, what do we do? Well, we try to we try to prove that Jesus is is God uh, through creation or through you know the the, the well it's creation too the, the 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 human eye and the giraffe and, we, and again we put God in the dock and now the unbeliever is judging. Or we say, does this make sense philosophically? Uh, now suddenly I have to show how this is philosophically sound. What did Paul say? They asked for proof. The Greeks asked for philosophical, to, to fit within their philosophical worldview and their philosophical speculation. But what am I going to do? Preach Christ crucified. And will they go, oh, of course. No, what does he say? A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. You see, part of the problem is, that I see in the church is, is we want to appear to be philosophically respectable and, and, and intellectually appealing. Now, make no mistake about it. The gospel is both. But Paul says, I, I'm not going to give them a sign. I'm not going to give in to their philosophical speculations. I'm going to preach Christ crucified. Here's what we do. We preach the gospel. We, we don't allow skeptics to be judge and jury. We preach the gospel. And then you say, well, they won't accept it. And I know that they won't accept it. But on the other hand, it's not evidence that is the power of God unto salvation. It's not appealing to their philosophical speculations that is the power of God. He said it's the gospel that's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, have, have people come to know the Lord through evidence? I have no doubt that that is the case. But that doesn't mean that that is something that we are to make the norm. Number two, I think that we must exercise a great deal of patience, both in salvation and sanctification. We understand that maybe people in our lives we've shared the gospel with, and, and they, they just, it just hasn't clicked. They, they can see, that they understand the words, they understand the sentences, they understand all of those things. And by the way, let me go back to evidence. If we commit to evidence, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to be an expert in biology, in geology, in astrophysics, astronomy, because now suddenly they say, "Well, I don't accept that that evidence." What about bio? Now I have to. Now I have to. We spend. There are some people that spend more time studying evidence than they do the, their very Bibles. Listen, I, I got a really easy plan for us. Just you know the gospel. Preach Christ crucified. 
That's how you got to know. Well, what about what about the you know the, the carbon fourteen dating? I don't know, but Jesus is God. He died on the cross. Everyone who placed their faith and trust in Him alone will be saved. If you do not believe in Jesus and you die, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. Well, what about what uh, Plato said in uh, the, the cave? And the... Jesus died on the cross. He was God. You are a sinner and you are separated from God. Your only hope of salvation is to believe in Jesus alone. How simple is that? How powerful is that? That's the power of God. We must exercise patience both in salvation and in sanctification. We need to be patient with each other. There are certain things that I would expect of someone who's walked with the Lord for 10 years that I would not expect for someone who's walked in the Lord for 10 minutes. It's, it's unfolding. That, that understanding is progressive. Number three, we must hold fast to the core objective truths of our faith. First and foremost, who Jesus Christ is. If we can, like Peter, say this is who Jesus Christ is in one concise, accurate, specific statement, something's wrong. We have to hold fast to this. We can't wiggle and wobble and waver over who Jesus is. He's not given us that option. Was he a good teacher? Yes. Was he only a good teacher? No. Was he a... Was he a, 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 a kind, compassionate person? Absolutely. But was just a kind... No. Our confession that all of this leads to is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are God. Which really is number four, that we must be able to clearly and concisely confess not our faith. We need to do that. Not our personal testimony, but the faith. In other words... Our faith has content. It's not just a subjective experience. And I've said this a thousand times. Um, there are a lot of Vickies. There's another Vicky in this room. There's a lot of Vickies. Does it matter which Vicky I'm married to? Yeah. Yeah. Do Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus? Yeah. In a Jesus. What about the Mormons? They believe in Jesus? Yeah. What about the Muslims? Do they believe in Jesus? Absolutely. The question is, what Jesus do you believe in? Is it this Jesus? Or is it Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? The Muslims? See, we've got to get clear on this. This we can't get close. You can't just be close. This is not like cornhole. You can't just get on the board. You've got to be in the hole. The Bible uses physical sight as a spiritual symbol, as a symbol of spiritual sight. And there are people who clearly can't see, who willfully cannot see. There are those who yet can't see clearly. They, they can see, it's unclear, but they can see, but in process. And there are those who can clearly see. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we recognize that um, you work differently in, in, in many different people.
And yet, Father, there is not one person who's going to be in heaven. We all get to heaven the same way by believing the right things. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross, that he rose again, that by faith and faith alone in that is our only hope of salvation, not by works, not by adding to that, not by being sincere, but by believing something that is true. By clearly seeing that Jesus is our only hope of salvation. And Father, we know that there are many people we come into contact with who cannot see, who clearly can't see. But Father, I pray that we would be unapologetic in proclaiming to them Christ crucified. That is the power of God. And ultimately, you are the one who grants sight. So, Lord, help us to be men and women of your word. Father, we love you, we adore you, we, we honor you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand?